Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. Today's guest is George Pratt. George is a rare and extraordinary person and is a rare and extraordinary artist. What makes him this way is his myriad abilities and his knowledge base that is not only phenomenally wide, but equally as deep. I'm calling this episode with George Part One. And I can't say it's part one of two because it may be part one of 39 or 712. I simply don't know how long this is going to take because George is larger than life and I need to do that justice. So this is part one of something. His artistic facilities span a multitude of media. How many? Here's a list of media that I know personally. He is outlandishly competent, if not outright masterful. Okay, you ready? Oil painting, watercolor painting, acrylic painting. You might just say, well, he's a good painter. All of those things are completely different. Printmaking, monotypes, trace monotypes, drawing with any mark making tool such as drawing with printmaking brayers. Yes, you heard me correctly. He actually did book illustrations with brayers and ink on paper. Pen and ink, pastel, mixed media, photography, film making, writing, sequential art, graphic novels, and digital art. And I don't want to leave out playing guitar in a rather complex finger-picking style. There are two fundamental factors that go into this type of ability that George has. Number one is the countless hours of practice and countless failures early on that contribute to the betterment of any craft. Factor number two is that George is an exquisite draftsman, a drawer. His drawings are impeccable and above all, the underlying drawing of any piece of work that he executes is interesting. I can't take my eyes from the unique interpretations that he delivers each and every time. The reason I am self-assured about these facts and listings is that I was in a teaching situation with George for well over a decade. I witnessed his aptitude for the things that I have mentioned firsthand, repeatedly over time. He is a recipient of the Eisner Award for his graphic novels, which is basically the equivalent of an actor winning an Oscar. He has received a Spectrum Gold Medal and Best Feature Documentary at the New York International Independent Film Festival for the documentary film See You in Hell, Blind Boy. George was included in Walt Reed's book titled The Illustrator in America, 1860 to 2000. And of course, he has had his work exhibited many times at the Society of Illustrators in New York. I kind of like the way I just said that. It's like, well, of course he was in the Society of Illustrators many times. Why wouldn't he be? Okay, deep breath. I have more to list. In addition to his gallery work, he has worked on the International Blacklight Project about genocide in West Africa, 
and his blues novel, See You in Hell, Blind Boy. He has worked for major comic publishing houses. Batman, Wolverine, and Netsuki are a few of his comics that he has done multiple editions. His graphic novels include Enemy Ace and No Man's Land. George's artistic abilities are wide and they are also deep. He attacks anything he does with urgency and vitality. These attributes are matched only by his base of knowledge about history, art, music, and many other subjects. He has a keen interest in World War I, and two of his graphic novels are based on this interest. He's a joy to talk to about any subject, but he does have an unending curiosity about World War I. He is quick-witted, affable, gregarious, and the first to help anyone in need, sympathetic and empathetic to a fault. His laugh is infectious, and when George laughs, everyone laughs. I'm laughing just uh, thinking about hearing him. He will amaze you with his knowledge on almost any subject matter and will astound you with his proficiency and insight. I suggest you grab your big chief tablet and your crayons and try to take notes and keep up with the names and publications you are about to hear in his expeditious exchange. It is my honor and joy to bring you my longtime friend, George Pratt. Let's get into it. George, tell us a little bit about what your dad did for a living and how that may have impacted the influence of comics and reading had on your life. My father was a physician, general practitioner, and he made a lot of rounds <clears throat> to the uh, various nursing homes. And uh, he always asked me to go with him while he did rounds. And when he went, when he made rounds, that was like, not the funnest thing for a kid because that basically meant I would sit in a car <laughs> while he ran into these places and did whatever, but he, but he wanted me. Was there he going into people's homes or institutions, <laughs> hospitals? What, where was they he were going? like nursing homes? Um, they weren't hot. Well, they were, yeah, they weren't hospitals. They were nursing homes and he would go in and see, I'm assuming several patients at, at once. I'm not sure, but as an enticement, he would take me to Gibson's department store <clears throat> and he knew that I was into that place because they had that giant paperback book rack and it was full of Doc Savage books, which I had gotten turned on to by my cousin, Jake in Victoria, Texas. And you were living sort of in Beaumont, Texas, Beaumont, in Texas. Eastern Texas. Yep. Southeast. It's like right on the Louisiana border. And, um, my cousin Jake was sort of my conduit to all the stuff that mom and dad probably didn't want me to be looking at, <laughs> you know? So he was the guy that would give me, you know, the Conan books with the Frazetta covers, the Lancer editions. And he would give, give me his underground comics, creepy and eerie. He turned me on to, um, and doc Savage. And so dad would take me to Gibson's and the doc Savage books, uh, Bantam 
books was re-releasing these things. They were pulps from the thirties. And Doc was like, you know, one of the first superheroes really, uh, he came after the shadow, but his name was Clark Savage. Uh, he had a fortress of solitude in the Arctic and he was also called the man of bronze. And if you look at the old ads in the pulps, it was, it would say Superman, Doc Savage, the man of bronze, you know? So, um, but they started re-releasing these in the in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, as paperback books, each of the Doc Savage super adventures, you know. And on the cover were James Bama paintings, which were, it's still my favorite work of his. I, mean, I remember those. They were outstanding. And I think eventually Frazetta did a few, didn't he? No, Boris did a couple. Uh, and then um, Bob Lark, I think it's Bob Larkin took over. And he completed the series, I believe. Oh, and they also had uh, Lou Feck did some, uh, which were, it, t- it was sort of a, it, for me, it had to be, it was a, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the word, uh, a taste issue. That I, it was a hard sell, but then I grew to like them. But, it, you know, they weren't Bama. <laughs> so, but the Bama, and I would go into this department store and sit there and like agonize over these covers because it was like, which cover was killing me, you know? And they were like, you know, that was like 50 cents my dad had to spend to pick me up one of these things to kind of keep, <laughs> keep me on the leash, you know? And, uh, and so I would, you know, pick, I would agonize, pick out the one that was like just the painting that was killing me, <clears throat> then get in the car. And then he would Meaning the painting that was just making you crazy because it was so good and you had to have it. Oh yeah, it was. God, the stuff was amazing. And it, and I had you know to this day, I, just around the corner here in my house, I have the entire collection on the bookshelf in plastic bags. You know, so and they're in mint condition. You know, I mean, I I collected the entire run and I read every single one of them. I and there's you know the funny thing is like the alternative to that was. Uh, the Frazetta Burroughs books, which I was also collecting. And those, and again, the covers made me read the books. And I was at the perfect age for Burroughs and Doc Savage. It was like, you know, 12, 13 years old. And those things blew my mind. And the funny thing is now I can sit down and uh, I've tried to reread Burroughs. And I can get through some of it. I can actually, you know, like the John Carter stuff was just amazing. And the Carson of Venus and I could get through those, but they, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a difficult trip now where Doc Savage, I can still read them and enjoy them and just get lost in them. And they are, they're incredibly formulaic and all that stuff, but they're still fun. You know, they're still a, a fun read, <clears throat> but those Bama covers. Yeah, that was the stuff. And, you know, and the thing was, see, my dad constantly, um, he was a depression kid, you know, and uh, he wasn't, I think he read comics, but I don't know if grandmom actually allowed them to read comics. He certainly knew comics because, you know, he would talk about Batman and Superman and all that stuff. But he, he was really always kind of pushing the pulps. And they were an illicit thing also because he, he would tell me about how he had to read them under the stairs with his friend, Bill Bowler. And his favorites were uh, G8 and his Battle Aces and... God, there was another Bill Barnes flying ace or something like that. And dad bought me these. Uh, he never gave me an actual pulp, which would have been really cool. But he like he bought me for Christmas, you know, books on the pulps. 
uh, that were, man, they blew me away. They were the, again, the covers on these things were just, they were over the top. And it was interesting because last night I did a, a lecture uh, with Joe Teal and Gary Barker. Gary's the guy who does Garfield, you know, he draws Garfield, but he, um, we, we gave sort of a short history of comics at the comic shop last night and of a presentation I put together years ago. <clears throat> and in there is this whole section on the pulse and, and the, the influence the cover artists had specifically on comic book uh, material. Uh, yeah. John Allen, St. John doing covers. One of the greatest covers of all time was a John Allen, St. John. I think it was weird tales. Um, but you know, but the, but the writing was obviously a major influence on comics. And so was the, the pen and ink art that was inside that illustrated those, those pulp stories. And then later, of course, like pulps, uh, went full circle and found themselves in comics. Cause we had doc Savage comics. We had Tarzan comics, Carson of Venus, you know, Burrow, Tarzan, all that stuff. Uh, Zorro, you know, all that stuff made its way back it like into comics into the medium that they inspired you know which is really cool but um yeah so dad would take me to get these things and and i would sit in the car and and just ogle that cover probably for like half an hour you know just like just drooling over this thing and then i would start reading the book constantly like you know read for a while flip back to the cover read some more flip back to the cover (laughs) so it was great that was a great time to be a fan did the cover art telegraph what the interior of the book would be about a little bit or not yeah on the doc savage adventures it did um however loosely you know but they definitely did and they could be i mean again like some of them were loosely uh, associated but they definitely did kind of touch on the content you know where for zeta covers kind of (laughs) didn't you know they did but they didn't and but for Zeta, you know, it was just like, I didn't care. Well, I never cared like about that anyway. As a kid, Mike Kaluta did a ton of covers and so did Bernie Wrightson. And I would buy those in Neil Adams and I would buy those things regardless. And it was interesting because later it was funny because I would bump into people, you know, other artists that were like, oh man, that really, that always pissed me off. I get some cover and, and uh, they had nothing to do with the insides. That really just, oh, you know, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Hell, I bought them for the covers. You know, the inside was crap. I bought it for the cover. You know, uh, and I would actually buy them and rip the covers off and throw the magazine comic away because it was crap. And I would just like <laughs> trim that off. And I had this whole collection. Joe Kubert, man, I would buy any cover Joe Kubert did. And I have a folder <clears throat> where I'm one of those uh, Itoya presentation folders. You know, uh, big fat one, and where you could put two covers side by side. And, uh, and even then it's like, I filled it up and then it's just like, they have a little, uh, pouch in there and it's like burgeoning with covers that I, it didn't have room to hold, you know? So man, that was the cover was it. That's the, you know, that's the glory spot. And then, but then, you know, in that time you could open up a comic book. Uh, we were discussing this last night. You could open up a comic book and it, they were anthology based generally, especially the DC books, uh, Marvel, you know, they got into like these long, they, they could have like, uh, you know, um, next issue, you know, uh, continuing the saga, whatever. And, and it was like funny because Gary was talking about that. And it was why he was a DC guy. He said, you know, because at that time you would go and you, you didn't have comic shops. 
you had the mom and pop, which we called 7-Eleven because they called it 7-Eleven, but had nothing to do with the chain. And um, in Jack's Packet, where my friend Lum and I would bike to either of these places. And, and you had spin racks, you know, and you, which that's what I remember which, in our grocery store in my small town of 700 people was going to the grocery store to buy. And you and I've talked about this a lot. Uh, you and I were uh, devouring creepy magazine, eerie, weird war tales, uh, everything yeah. from from Archie to Batman. That's where all my money went. Yeah, absolutely. That's where all my parents money went. <laughs> <laughs> but um and that squeaky rack, man, you know, it was like, it was like, you know, oh, here's the idiot over here looking at comics. <laughs> and, you know, but you weren't guaranteed of getting the next issue of anything at that time. You know, it was hit or miss. You went to the comic shop, oh, the comic shop. you went to 7-Eleven and you went through the rack hoping you just were like hungry and you took what you could get because you weren't guaranteed of getting the next issue of any of those books. In D.C., they had Weird War Tales. They had uh, Haunted House, House of Mystery, Ghosts, you know, they uh, and even just the regular books were in anthology driven. So you could pick up one of those, any one of those and know that within reason there was going to be a good story in there because they were you might have two or three shorts, you know, even the major title like Batman, you know, it was uh, it was a one shot little deal. But in there they would have other little stories. And they would also, the great thing about DC, Marvel later kind of got on it, but <clears throat> DC would also do, they would reference the past. They would put in like a, one of the early Batman stories. And man, I love those things. They look so homespun. They look like they were done, you know, in the garage, you know. And that to me was fascinating. And I loved it. It was like, it made me really like Batman even more, you know. But that's why I was a DC guy was because they had, because of Batman. And they I had Sergeant Rock. I remember in um, creepy, for sure, maybe eerie. Also, there was an artist by the name of Jose Gonzalez, and he, oh yeah, oh yeah, he. That was probably my my favorite. Uh, you know, not counting Bernie Wrightson and and some of those yeah. people, but I remember him doing Vampirella magazine a few times, and I was always fascinated because Jose Gonzalez using black ink and white paper could make snow or fog <laughs> or rain. And I was just, <laughs> I was just fascinated. Just like, how does that guy figure out how to do this? What were some of your, who were some of your favorite um, artists? Well, those, you know, you were, you mentioned Vampirella and that was the thing about, again, that was this thing my cousin turned me on to. And because it was magazine format, which they did because they didn't want to. James Warren was a lawyer who put those together, and he hired all the old EC guys uh, who were had been, you know, persecuted in the uh, in the fifties because of uh, the seduction of the innocent by uh, Frederick Doctor Frederick Wortham, the, the uh, child psychologist, uh, and they were considered. I've, I've had, and it was interesting. I've had discussions with several of the guys when they were alive over this stuff and they were saying george evans talked about that that when that stuff hit they were considered just shy of child molesters and um they found it very difficult to get work after that and so they when they went into ad agencies or whatever to get work 
they would like disavow any any knowledge of having done comic books because well let's let's really, clarify that a little bit because they were considered that ilk of person because of the storylines or the artwork or everything yeah they were it was considered uh it was a book that wortham put out about the seduction of the innocent one he claimed batman and Ramad were homosexuals and he like talked about how this was rotting our children's brains and you know and all this stuff and it went before congress and um they had to testify before Congress and they instituted just like the movies, a self-regulation system, uh, self rate, you know, like they were rating their own material <clears throat> and it became the comics code authority, which had a little stamp at the top. This has been approved by the comics code authority, you know, and you couldn't use certain words like flick because the L and the I might run together, you know, and, um, all kinds of stuff. And the visually, they were they basically tied their hands massively. Um, and this was late sixties. No, this is our late fifties. Oh wow, well, a decade sooner the, than I thought. Yeah, well, it was it tied right into the McCarthy stuff, and they these guys were also you know, are you a red dupe? You know this kind of stuff, um, and it destroyed a lot of these guys' lives and. Um, so they started this whole, you know, thing to regulate themselves. And Warren was like, I'm not going to get involved in that. He's like, screw that. I'm going to make it a magazine, which isn't bound by that. And we'll do whatever the hell we want. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so he hired all those guys, which was amazing because they did their best work. I mean, they did amazing work in EC comics, you know, uh, Tales from the Crypt. Uh, all that stuff, Vault of Horror. <clears throat> and he hired all these guys and they did um, like unbelievable work for Warren Comics, which was Creepy and Eerie, Vampirella, and then they had a four-issue run of Blazing Combat. Blazing Combat didn't last. That was right at the height of the Vietnam War. America didn't want anything to do with that stuff, which was interesting too because that book was a, was a heavy-duty anti-war thing you know of the stories in there were anti-war <clears throat> and archie goodwin uh considered you know the nicest guy in comics um uh, edited and wrote most of that stuff and um it's like the it's the pinnacle man i mean there's amazing stuff and that was the thing it was like you but because it was a magazine format in black and white had these painted covers with black and white interiors you always felt at least i did that I wasn't supposed to be reading it because <laughs> it was a magazine. That was like an adult thing. And uh, plus the stories were, they were creepy and eerie, you know, and they were, they were uh, pretty aggressive and stuff. And, but man, I was fascinated. My cousin showed me that stuff. And I remember sitting in the back of the car, reading those things on the way back home and just, yeah, it gave me goosebumps and the art just was blowing my mind, you know? So yeah, all that stuff was, uh, amazing and, and especially warren he also started hiring these uh european artists which was different than the comics which it, uh, the regular comic books and they started bringing in in the like the early 70s dc and marvel started bringing in the filipino artists because they would work cheaper and that really pissed off a lot of american creators but man those Filipino creators were unbelievable. <laughs> they did the most amazing work, you know, Alex Nino, Nestor Redondo, and 
all those guys. I mean, it was just incredible. But in at, in Warren, you had Jose Ortiz, you had uh, Arleon, uh, Felix Mas, you had the uh, Gonzalez, you had uh, uh, Lope. Uh, I think there was a uh, who am I thinking of? Um, Gonzalo Mayo, who was really cool now. It's like I'm friends with him on Facebook. You know, <laughs> all these amazing artists. And then you also had Alex Toth, you know, these American creators in there that were that had been tearing up the regular books. But here they were. They got to kind of stretch, you know, kind of stretch themselves in the Warren books because it was just black and white and it was larger page size uh, and, you know, uh, more adult material. So it was it was a win win for everyone. You know, Bernie Wrightson did some of his greatest work in Creepy and Eerie. Although, you know, like Swamp Thing and well, hell, you know, Bernie's entire career was just stunning. Well, but, Frankenstein was a tour de force. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for Bernie. So, yeah. You know, and the thing is, that, like, the, the, but without those early EC books uh, with someone in there like. Uh, now you're saying EC, not D as in dog C, right? Right. EC was entertainment or entertaining comics. And that was Max, well, William Gaines, who was the son of Max Gaines. Max Gaines created the first comic book, uh, which was Famous Funnies, which was a reprint of newspaper strips. And Max Gaines, uh, sorry, Bill Gaines was his son, and he started Entertaining Comics, EC Comics, and then later created Mad Magazine. And that's why Mad went from, it started as a regular comic book. And that was right after those trials. They said, okay, well, screw it. We're going to do, you know, humor. And they quickly, I forget how many issues in, they switched to magazine format for the very same reason that Warren published Creepy and Eerie, which was to get away from the comics code. And they could do whatever they wanted. And if you remember, you know, part of what made Mad so amazing was it really was anti-establishment and it was extremely sarcastic it was satirical and they were all about you know giving a hard time to the man that's right and that's gone it's just a funny book now it's just a humor thing um it's still amazing you know but it's like man they were they were stretching back then you know but again without those ec comics and DC Comics stands for Detective Comics, uh, which was their first book, which later, you know, is where Batman debuted. But um, without those early EC books, with especially with with well, with a lot of those creators, Toth was amazing. Uh, but Bernie Krigstein was the one who like well, well, the way those books worked was uh, Harvey Kurtzman who also was instrumental in Mad Magazine. Among others, he did a humor magazine called Trump. He did one called, uh, now I'm going to forget or help, I think, a whole bunch. He also, you know, and created some of those with uh, Terry Gilliam, the Monty Python guy. But Bernie Krigstein, well, okay, so the way those things worked was Harvey Kurtzman was the editor and writer of a ton of that stuff. And he would, like, even lay these things out and then they would the boards would already be paneled with ink panels and with the balloons already in place based on his layouts. And the, all the artists did was fill in the block, the blanks, 
based on his layouts, which I had to do that in one story for Heavy Metal magazine. And I, man, I hated it because <laughs> it was like you had no no real creative freedom other than just to polish the drawing. But along comes Bernie Krigstein. And he like took these stories that were like, you know, they were like four page stories, maybe five page stories, whatever. And he started slicing and dicing time in these things, like really taking the, the, the medium seriously, not to say that the others didn't, but he took it to a whole other level. You know, they, like he started slicing and dicing it and he kept begging for more pages for some of these stories, even though he wasn't, I don't think he got paid extra but begging for more more room to unfold and actually really get to the nitty gritty of telling these stories in the most effective way. Um, and it became a real sore spot, but he, he did one of the greatest comic stories of all time, which just sold at, at auction, but I, for an amazing amount of money, but it's the master race all about the Holocaust. It's a tour de force, you know I mean? It's amazing. But anyway, it became a real sore spot for him and he finally just said, you know what? Screw it. I'm done. And he left comics and became a uh, painter and an illustrator and taught for years at SVA in New York City, School of Visual Arts, and refused to talk about comic books. And even though he's like one of the greatest practitioners ever, he, I think he before he died, he warmed up, I believe. But he influenced so many people, Jim Steranko in particular, uh, the way he started slicing and dicing was a direct uh, you know, could be directly attributed to being influenced by by Krigstein uh, and Jack Kirby. George, when you were going to Pratt in Brooklyn, which although your last name is Pratt, you had nothing to do with that school except to be a, a student there. You decided at one point, wow, there's all these great artists living around here. I wonder if I can go talk to one. So what <laughs> did you do? Well, you know, <clears throat> it's funny because when I was a kid, you know, my friend Lum and I, Lum Edwards, we we were comic junkies. And I mean, anything for color, you know, printed on newsprint was fair game. But we like started our own fanzine called Infinity. And we would go, this, lead, this does lead into that answer, but <clears throat> we would go every Sunday, first Sunday of every month to his father's insurance company offices. And we would type up our stories on the IBM Selectrix. And we would put a, put our dummy together uh, with, with artwork we'd been doing, basically us copying our heroes, you know, copying Neil Adams and Bernie Wrightson and Frazetta and Jeff Jones and whatnot, Sal, uh, John Basima and on and on. <clears throat> and we would like put this thing together and Xerox it. And we would sell these things. So we had a, and we had like a, a subscription base that we had put an ad in the comic buyer's guide. And I forget how many subscriptions we sold to this thing, but we, you know, we would like, you know, Xerox it, staple it, and then mail them out. And um, we were so into this stuff. And so we would sit, I remember sitting there, we would, we would ride our bikes to the, uh, the library, uh, which was downtown. And we would go in there and we would pull the New York phone book out and we would go through the New York phone book looking and it's like, oh my God, there's Neil Adams. Holy shit. There's Jeff Jones and Bernie. And that was the thing we saw Jeff Jones, Bernie Wrightson, Kaluta, 
that's it. They all had the same phone number <laughs> or, you know, address. And we were like, oh my God. We, but even then we didn't really put it together. Like they were sharing a studio, but, <clears throat> and then we would write some of these numbers down and we, and I remember one time trying to call Neil Adams. Lum was like, yo, man, we got to call Neil Adams. And I remember dialing that thing, dialing that phone and this thing was ringing and finally it was like, oh, I hung up. I'm like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> now, were you <laughs> in Beaumont at the time? Yeah, Beaumont, okay. Texas. Yeah, you know, and just freaking out and like finally like, you know, just cratering because it was too scary to talk to these guys. So I get to get to art school and I remember going down to the payphone. We didn't have a phone in the room. Went down and didn't know, you know, mobile phones. That was like Dick Tracy at that point. Nobody but, had a phone in the room. It was... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was the phone on the wall. Yep. And it was a dime to, to use it. And I remember calling the operator <clears throat> and asking for, do you have a, and I don't know why I picked Kaluta, uh, but I said, you have a phone number from Mike, Michael William Kaluta. Hold for the number. You know, she get, I get this number and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so I wrote it down. I'm like literally, I mean, physically shaking. You know, these guys were gods. And I remember throwing another dime in and calling and Mike did answer, you know, he's like, hello. <laughs> I was like, is this Mike Kaluta? Yes. The Mike Kaluta. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what, a, like, what a fanboy you were. Oh, I was a total, total fanboy geek, man. I mean, and he's like, yes. I said, the Mike Kaluta that does comic books. Yes. I'm like, and then I was telling, I didn't know what to say after that. I'm like, uh, and I'm like, do you, do you let people come visit your studio? You know, that's something to like that. And he's like, sure. And I was like, really? Uh-huh. And I was like, um, when can I come over? <laughs> you know? And I think it was like the next day or the day after that. I mean, I went at eight, I got to his place. He was way upper, uh, what upper, well, he was near off Broadway, I think, but upper uptown, 90s. That was a long train ride from Brooklyn. And uh, I got to his door. I was wearing my cowboy boots <laughs> and my, my big ass fake leather portfolio. It was giant. You know what I mean? Full of my crap. And How I went to cool ring were you? Oh, man. I went to ring the doorbell and it said, you know, Michael Kaluta and below that, Charles Vess, whose work I had seen in heavy metal and stuff. And I'm like, what? Like, oh my God, you know, and uh, rang the bell. And he like, I saw Kaluta lean out and look down. He's like, you know, go in when I buzz the door. And he's like, mm. so I'll go in. <clears throat> Long trek up. He was up near the top floor, if not the top floor now, I don't remember. But I got there at eight in the morning and I was petrified, man. I was like shitting my pants. And I remember getting up there and he brings in, it was a small place. It was so small. Um, had two rooms and a bath and a, in this little cubby for a kitchen. And he brings me in and Elaine Lee was there at that time. She was just leaving. And she left, and it was just me and him and Charles Vess, who was in the other room, a little small, even smaller room. <clears throat> and uh, I was like, I didn't know what to do. I was just sitting there holding my portfolio and like quivering. <laughs> and he's like, and I'd met, you know, I mean, I'd gone to conventions 
in Texas, you know, and so I met like Frank Brunner and stuff like that. But Kaluta was like really one of my heroes. And I remember standing there and he goes, okay, he goes, here, give me your portfolio. And he took it and he goes, calm down, chill out. (laughs) (laughs) He knew exactly what that was. He could see the fear in your eyes. Oh, and he had done it with Frazetta, you know? And so, man. Meaning Kaluta had approached Frank Frazetta and said, hey, can I come over? Yeah, yeah, totally. And they were, you know, I mean, yeah. And, um, and I had a couple of drawings from class of, uh, you know, life drawings. And I had like some drawings we had, we we, we had had to do of like uh, the skeleton and stuff. I had one uh, specifically of a pelvis that I'd drawn and Kaluta, like he loved that drawing. And it's funny because even just like three months ago, he brought that drawing up in a, in a conversation with someone like, this thing blew my mind, you know, which is like really cool, you know? Nice. And, and I had my studio book on me. I got him to sign it and he signed it with, uh, you know, to George, the man with the golden arm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and literally I was there, we were on the floor pulling out books about Lucas Slav epic and stuff. We're on the floor going through this stuff. And his room was like, like a Victorian studio. I mean, it was, there was not a single empty space on the wall. And they were like these these sort of trellis things on the root on the ceiling, and he had strung these these uh, long cloths that had his chapter heading drawings from the uh, Robert E. Howard Swords of Sharzar book he did, and they were printed on this like linen or something, and they were strung across the ceiling, and there were peacock feathers everywhere, and art over every single inch. I was just it was incredible. And he slept on a futon, so we, you know, that was like the sofa. And uh, oh man, and I was there literally. Like I went to dinner with him. I left at eight after eight o'clock that night. I was there all friggin' day, and met Charles Vess, and it was just like he knew, Kaluta knew exactly what that meant. You know what I mean? And he made sure that that day was like ultimate. Well, and and I know that you have done the exact same thing for countless other students because you never forgot that experience that he gave you. Oh, it meant meant the world. It still means the world to me, you know. And uh, yeah, it was uh, just recently Greg Ruth uh, wrote an article about that as well. (laughs) My summer with George, it's on muddy, muddy colors. And uh, just out of the blue, he contacted me and said, hey, I, you know, I want you to read this thing because it's all about hanging in your studio. And it was. It's all so, about that. So Greg contacted you and said, uh, hey, can I come over and hang out? And you gave him the Mike Kaluta experience. Yeah, the Mike Kaluta treatment, man. And but, it you know, but. Uh, yeah, but it's, you know, but it, like I was no Mike Kaluta. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was, you know. It, that was a whole different, you know, it wasn't the same thing, but it was, but I guess it, depending on how he viewed me, I guess, but I was no Mike Kaluta, man. But, uh, but he, the thing about Greg was he, yeah, he, and I honestly don't remember how we got together, uh, but he was from Texas. And so we had a lot to talk about. And even Kaluta had spent a lot of time in Texas. I think he grown up, he was a uh, military brat, but <clears throat> had spent time in Texas, but 
you know, so we had a lot to talk about, about Galveston and, you know, and stuff. Um, and so Greg would hang out quite a bit and it was a blast, you know, it was, but that was a thing that, that I found out, you know, was that artists, especially these comic artists, it's just, and illustrators, um, it's an open book and they're, they, unlike, I guess, other professions, you know, where there's this sort of, uh, and not that comics doesn't, you always have like your assholes, but you know, but they're, but they're thrilled that anyone wants to do it. You know, and there's no age barriers. Meaning age, they're thrilled I, that someone wants to come and look at their work and talk to them and maybe get advice. That, and, but also thrilled that anyone wants to do that as a as a career. And they don't never saw anyone as a threat. The people that I spoke with, they were an open book and they were thrilled that you wanted. They were just thrilled that you wanted to do it, you know. Um, it wasn't like, oh, I got to protect my secrets. Oh my God, here's competition. Blah blah blah. No, none of that. That was amazing, and the, and also that the 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 age gap and um, was just you know I, I in a, you know I guess I can't speak 100 percent to like a gender thing, but I just I never saw that. Not but I wasn't a woman, so I don't know if, if they experienced that or not. I mean, but it seemed incredibly open to me, you know um on all levels that it was just thrilled they wanted like oh you want to do this more people more people yeah let's all you know we're all in it you know and that that to me was like amazing somewhere about that time you'll have to tell us exactly when you met jeffrey Catherine jones and i know that that you were a big fan of hers and i guess to clarify that maybe some people don't know Jeff Jones was a male artist that was incredibly impactful in the industry and later in life transitioned into being Catherine Jones. So that's why I said Jeffrey Catherine Jones. And you knew both entities. So when did you meet Jeff the first time and why? Yeah, and just to clarify that too, like my relationship with Jeff until the day he died was we we corresponded back and forth and when we were together uh, it was just jeff and he he that was our deal i went to heard that he was going to be at new york con and jeff really yeah was like again this okay so to put these people in perspective there was you got to remember there was no internet and up until mid to late 70s more late seventies, there were no other than the buyer's guide and rocket blast comic collector RBCC. There were no actual uh, magazines or books dedicated to the craft of comic books. So you didn't really, unless you could like you found some interview somewhere where they mentioned like the pen nib they were using or whatever, there was very little info on these people. And, um, Storenko started his super graphics company, uh, publishing company, and did like a history of comics, he, and he, which was an unbelievable two-volume thing. But he started out the, putting out this thing called Comic Scene with an X, I think. Maybe it started with a C and then went to an A. I don't know. But anyway, and that, that was like a newspaper type thing. And in it, like he had access, right? He was a professional comic artist and they were having their 
you know, which we didn't know about, but they were like first Fridays in New York City. And New York was the, excuse me, New York was the, you know, the capital for comics. That's where all the two company, the two big companies were. That's where all the action was happening. You had to be in New York to be a comic book artist. So they would do these first Fridays where everybody would get together and they would have a little party and whatever. So he had, he had access and started interviewing these people that were hot, you know, like Neil Adams, Bernie Wrightson, uh, you know, Barry Smith, Craig Russell, you know, uh, I don't remember Jeff being uh, interviewed in that, but it's got it's been so long. But um, so that was the first real conduit uh, or access to information that we had, you know, so I was like, so anywhere from, I would say maybe uh, 75, 76, so I was like 15 or 16 years old, finally getting some insight into this stuff, you know, from the, from the horse's mouth, but, and man, gobbled it up, you know, just ate that up. Like, um, <laughs> it was amazing. And they showed work that wasn't getting into comics. They showed work they did for their own personal stuff and whatever. But at that time, when I went right, I went to one year of university before I went to art school. And I went to uh, Georgetown, Texas, uh, Southwestern University, outside of Austin, Texas. And I remember going, there was Austin Books, which is like, was ultimate comic shop. And I went in there and they had, well, one, that's where I found my copy of the Joseph Clement Cole, the magic pen of Joseph Clement Cole by Walt Reed. Who I would also later get to meet, you know, but um, in there too, they had the studio was this book that came out by Dragon's Dream, which was, uh, oh, I hope I don't get that wrong. I want to say Rodney Matthews or I don't know, this, uh, the artist who did like the S covers and all that stuff, but he started his own publishing company and put out this book, the studio. And that's when you found out that Bernie Wrightson, Jeff Jones, Mike Kaluta, Barry Windsor Smith, were all sharing a studio in New York City at around 1976 or 77. And that book literally changed, and it changed my life, but I know that in my generation of guys that got into comics and stuff, and, and some that didn't get into comics, but got into, you know, sci-fi and fantasy uh, art, you know, comic uh book covers and stuff well George, yeah what was explain that seminal experience you had of that book what was in that book that really became this life-changing experience for you well you got to see that these these comic book guys were not one-dimensional people right they didn't just do comic books they were doing posters. They were doing, they were illustrating books. They were, they had, you know, personal work out the wazoo. And here it all was like, oh my God, you know? Uh, and, and before that, I like, I'd been collecting all of their stuff, you know, like uh, Barry Smith, who later changed, added the Windsor, uh, was the guy who did the first Conan comic books. And you got to watch his work mature to like, especially to, Red Nails, which was a he did for the black and white Savage Sword of Conan, Savage Tales of Conan, maybe, but was like just this mind blowing uh, piece of work. I mean, it's just it. it I mean, you know, got to remember too. This stuff holds up 
It's it, it is as strong today as it was then. And he had started his own publishing company called Gorblimey Press. And I was ordering my alum and I were ordering these prints from him, you know, that were like these, these amazing black and they were like pen and ink things. But then he would do watercolor and stuff in them. And they were beautiful and they were signed and numbered. And, and <laughs> funny story about one of those. I remember ordering this thing. It's called uh, Land of Enchantment, I think it was called, or something like that. The Enchanted, or I don't know. But it was this horizontal thing with like, I mean, and his attention to detail was nuts. You know, I mean, it was all these, it was like a fine Waldo thing in these things. And like, I remember ordering this thing and I had to go to the eye doctor one day. And so my eyes were dilated. I come home and mom's like, hey, your poster came in. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I couldn't even look at it. I couldn't see it. A bad you know, timing. Rolling it and look at this blur, you know? So that work, you saw, like, these were guys that not only did they do, you know, the superheroes or whatever, and what, but it was just like, you know, I guess it's part of it was it was it was like validity. You know what I mean? Here's this, like, this cool-ass book that just gave this intense validity to the, to the work that we wanted to do and that these people were doing. And, and Jeff in particular got me because he was a painter, you know, he painted uh, as well as just this amazing black and white guy. And that changed my direction in a major way. Uh, Jeff's what work was the name of the book again that you were looking at? The studio. Okay. The studio. <laughs> so do you think and, this book became the, a, a larger experience than meeting Mike Kaluta four or five years later? Were they equal? Were they different? Oh, it's all different. I mean, it's all, it's all different and all the same, you know, uh, it's all part of the, just the, the chain. You know what I mean? It was like, you're just getting slammed. You know, and every one of those things added up to, you know, it just, they built on each other, I guess. Um, and, you know, and the thing is, too, like getting to meet Kaluta, um, you found out, too, that he was everything you hoped he would be, right? Like he didn't destroy the illusion or the, you know, that, that, that I had in my head of this creator. And it just made the work, it just underlined everything about the work that I, that was so positive and, and fulfilling as a, as a fan and as a viewer and as a wannabe, you know? And, um, but that book in particular was a paradigm shift for lots of my contemporaries and and the and to remember too that these were the young turks uh in the comic world because they came in <clears throat> a lot of these guys uh in comics you know they were churning out the work and it was great work you know they were churning the stuff out and they had families and they had whatever and and my and kaluta and wrightson and jones and smith you know like smith did at least the story goes you know like his first conan's and our first comic where he was doing that stuff on park benches when he came over from England. And so they, it was all about, that was the difference. It was about why that book was important was it was, a, it was about the art that they saw comics as an art form, you know, 
that it wasn't just this job. It wasn't just an industry. It was an art form. And they took it incredibly seriously. And, you know, they would lavish time on these pages where they were getting paid shit wages, you know, but it wasn't about the money. It was about the work. It was about the love of the art and, and pushing themselves. And so the fact that they all sort of gravitated towards each other is not, to me is like, that's no surprise. You know, they were the guys that were doing the best work, you know? Um, and I just think that, uh, when I look at it, and that that was the big shift that you know we needed and the older comic guys were really they really got pissed off about some of that because they were like well shit i can't spend a week on a page because i have i got to pay for my mortgage i got to pay for my insurance I, I can't do that you know and it's like well yeah okay but, but how they could did. those how could those guys afford to do it then well, they were like, you know, their their rent was a hundred hundred bucks a month, maybe, you know, fifty bucks a month, and instead so, of several hundred. Yeah, they weren't they weren't buying homes and stuff. They were living in brownstones, and you know, and it was like they didn't care about it. It was like they needed enough money to eat. They needed to be able to buy the you know pay the rent, and then they would go out and play frisbee and draw. You know, they were kids. They were 18, 19, 20 years old. And uh, they hadn't made those those concessions to to life that we all make, you know. Um, or, I don't know if you call them concessions, I guess, but you know they hadn't made those choices yet. It was all about having fun, drawing comic books, and and just and just loving up on the art, you know. Um, and I can definitely relate to that because that's what it was for me and my gang. <clears throat> you know, I lived in an apartment with four or five other people who were artists, and my rent was 100, 150. And, you know, that was it. All I needed, to, you know, as long as I had food and I could buy art supplies and music and books and pay my rent, I was gold. It was gold. And before we get back to the story about how you met Jeff Jones, I do want to mention quickly that a documentary about Jeffrey Catherine Jones came out probably four years ago or so. And I want the listeners to know that you, George, were interviewed for that movie. So George wasn't just a person that happened to meet Jeff. Uh, they had they had a relationship. They had a friendship, and um, and I know that that really touched you to be able to be asked to participate in that movie. Absolutely, yeah. Jeff was <clears throat> so. I guess all that leading up to just how important these people were not just, you know, I mean, in our development, obviously, but the thing is, you know, when you were a kid and you're reading these stories and looking at this art, these people, be, they were like your best friends, you know, <laughs> they didn't know it, but you, but they were your best friends and they were, you know, you, you became intimately familiar with their work and, and their, the choices they were making in their storytelling and, and the visuals and all this stuff. And so <clears throat> they were like, you know, they were our Rembrandts and our, uh, you know, uh, Monet's and what, <laughs> whatever, you know, and that was the thing. Jeff for me was the, the doorway <clears throat> into the wider world of art. And that's not to say that I wasn't exposed because I was, because my parents were big art people. They loved art. And we had my dad, his heroes were, Pissarro and uh, Alfred Sisley and 
these things. So those books were around me as a kid. And I was, a, I was infatuated with uh, Rembrandt and Homer in particular uh, as a kid and loved, I mean, I was drawn to their work, you know, and, but so, you know, here, so here I was in, in art school where comic books were a no-no. They were not discussed. They were not a viable uh, expression in the school's eyes at all. And um, it was a no-no. You know, where illustration was the redheaded stepchild of art, <laughs> comics was the redheaded stepchild of the redheaded stepchild. So they just weren't discussed, even though there was, you know, there were a lot of us that were all about comics, you know. Uh, in in school at the time was uh, Peter Cooper, uh, uh, Ken Williams, uh, and I were trying to figure out how to paint together. Um, Dan Klaus was my roommate. We had John Van Fleet, Mark Jurello, um, uh, Scott Hanna was there. I mean, it was you know, uh, Rick Altergott. I mean, it, Seth Tobachman. I mean, this was like a a ton of people that were all about comics. So anyway, these people were these these artists were you know our giants, and so uh, we heard that Jeff was going to be at the New York Con, which. Uh, we had already been going to the cons anyway, you know, but we went that, that day expressly to see Jeff. And we took with us our, our Jones ripoff stuff, our early work and stuff. I had a painting that I'd done uh, from one of Jeff's uh, Solomon Kane uh, wash drawings, which I still own that painting, <laughs> you know? So you and were emulating several- Jeff's work to help inform your work. You were basically copying someone, which is what art school used to be. They would copy the masters to learn what they were doing, get in their head, get in their shoes. And you were doing the same thing. Yeah. That's how I learned how to draw was copying my comic book heroes, you know, and by heroes, I mean the artists, you know, not the, not the characters, but, um, you know, not tracing and not, you know, didn't, I didn't even know if projectors existed for that kind of thing, but it was eyeballing it and drawing it. You know what I mean? It was observational uh, copying. And so, yeah, I was, we were and since the school wasn't really teaching us how to paint, you know, I was looking at Jeff's paintings and, you know, Rembrandt and Sargent and, and uh, Bert Silverman, another illustrator and trying to figure it out, you know, like, eyeballing these things like just i mean getting down you know molecular level you know to try to figure out how they did this stuff and uh so we went and jeff had a table and carol zaloom was there and uh we showed him our stuff and he was like wow he was like uh you know i showed him my painting and he said oh i've never wow i've never seen it in paint before you know, <laughs> you know? what age and, was uh, jeff at the time Wow. You know, I really, I really don't know. It's like, that's so confusing to me. Forties, uh, maybe late forties. And late you were 40s. still in school, art school. So you were about 20, give or take. Yeah. 20, 21, you know, and, uh, and he like looked at this and he said, you know, and see, you got to remember too, at this point, Jeff had, uh, although he was doing I'm age for heavy metal at the time, was a black and white one one page strip like Idol that he did for Lampoon in the seventies. Uh, he had basically given up illustration 
because uh, in the 60s and 70s, he was one of the most prolific cover artists for sci-fi fantasy. And uh, he, but he had given it up and he was just painting for himself and doing that one strip. And he said, hey, he goes, you know, you guys ought to come up and let's go landscape painting. <laughs> Our heads explode. <laughs> I mean, we were like, holy shit. Rembrandt just asked us to go painting with him, you know? And I, and it was so funny because I, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people where it's like, I'll ask someone anything because all they can do is say no, you know, the worst they can say is no. And I was like, Hey, would you be up for trading? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, absolutely. And he had these watercolors on the, on his table. They were so cool. And I had, and I had a watercolor, uh, several, maybe I had several watercolors with me too. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, and I said, well, like what? He goes, well, he goes, yeah, pick anything out. You know, I'm like, what? So, oh man, I agonized <laughs> and, and picked up that one thing, this, which I still have, you know, and he, what'd you he have said, to do, what? George, pick out the good one. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and I said, you know, what do you, what do you want? You know, and he picked out something and man, Kent was so pissed off at me. <laughs> you know? Kent Williams. But anyway, yeah, Kent Williams, because it's that's not something he would have done, you know. And it was like, hey, well, but he but he was okay with it. And so, man, we wasted no time going up to visit Jeff and to go painting. And he at that time he lived in a trailer at the with and he was and we hadn't met Jay Muth yet, but he was living, they shared that. I think Jeff was living there. I don't know if Jay was actually living there or just using the studio, but uh, it was at this the foot of a mountain in front of a you cross the road and there'd be a there was this stream that ran through there. So we pulled in and went painting, went landscape painting with Jeff, which was amazing. I mean, just to see him actually doing it, and it was an eye opener, you know, because we. His paintings are incredibly, they look incredibly delicate and whatever, but man, he would beat the hell out of a canvas. And that was an eye opener. It was like, oh, so some of those effects aren't just, you know, like Whistler, you know, with these veils of paint and whatever, you know, I mean, it was like, he really attacked this thing. And then, but then he would also wander off into the woods after about 30 minutes, you know, and we were like, what the hell is that about? <laughs> it's like, you know. While what we were was it about? Did you ever find out? Was he just getting back in his own head or something? Yeah. Well, what it was, was like, he got it to a point. I mean, maybe he had to take a whiz, but he got it to a point and then he wandered off. And so he, like where we were sitting there struggling and destroying the good things that we had done, you know, because we were, we didn't, I mean, we had never done that. I mean, you know, really done it before like that. And so he would like wander off and then come back and study it for a second. And then he would, get back into it and it was like oh okay don't just keep beating it up you know like oh it's not coming out i got guess i gotta work harder no get it to a certain point step back a little more thinking a little you know what i mean and that was like that was gold <laughs> you know um and the thing is too we were like jeff was amazing at looking at something that was incredibly complex some of these landscapes that we were looking at you know we were trying to take in this vista and Jeff would focus on something and design the hell out of it into this little, into this gem, you know, a little icon kind of thing. He didn't, t he didn't try to paint the whole damn scene. He like focused on an aspect of it and then went to town on it. And that, that was an eye opener, you know, just like how to simplify, how to like, you know, uh, 
scale your vision a little bit so you're not trying to take everything in, you know, and how to edit what you're seeing and all that stuff. You know, it was just, uh, it, it was, it was, a, it was a life-saving thing. And so then we went back to the trailer and he poured everybody a glass of wine. The sun was setting and he held the glass of wine up to the light, the sunlight. And he said, how would, how would y'all mix this color in the, in the bottom of that glass, you know, where the light was hitting. And we went around Robin, you know, it was like, Oh, I would use this, this, and this. And, and then uh, Jay was like, Oh, I would use this, this, and this. And we all had a, we all had a different combo, you know? And Jeff said, yeah, but the cool thing is if we all sat down and mixed it, we would all get to the same place, even though we were all coming at it from different perspectives, you know, it was, it was just cool shit, you know? And, and in that room too. And so that night too, like, you know, we crashed and he put us in. So you spent the night up there too. Oh yeah. Well, what a hospitable, warm person. Exactly. Well, that's again, you know what I mean? It was just, it was amazing. And he put me in this little room and it was, I didn't sleep a wink because we had bear skins for, for covers. And I remember laying there and I looked up and there were this, it was where he kept his, uh, some of the costume stuff, you know, there were capes and things in there and uh, maybe photographic equipment. I don't remember now, but on the walls, stacks of paintings. And I was like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't sleep a wink, man. I was, I was thumbing through those paintings all night long and just eyeballing this. Some of that stuff has never been published and uh, I don't know what happened to it. But I remember like doing a couple sketches from them and stuff like that. It was just, it was an amazing, again, this amazing trip, you know, just an amazing journey. So, yeah. And so through the years, uh, going up and painting with Jeff and Jay, Dan Green would go out and Bernie Wrightson. Well, that was the thing too. Like we had met uh, Roy Crinkle, an amazing pen and ink artist. He did some painting work, but he was one of the EC comic artists. Uh, very influential on Frank Rosetta and Jeff and Mike Kaluta and Bernie, all of that whole gang, you know, had just died. And Kent and I were at a New York con at that time. It was a different con than the one that we had met Jeff at. And Bernie Wrightson showed up, you know, <laughs> like, and he was just there. He didn't set up, but he was there for, Crinkle's funeral, I think. And we went up and introduced ourselves to Bernie, who, God, you know, was, again, one of the gods. And we were like, hey, you know, uh, introduced ourselves and said, hope you don't mind, but, you know, Jeff Jones, Jeff, we met Jeff, and he's invited us to come up and paint. And when he goes, really? And we're like, yeah. And he goes, oh, man. He goes, well, when y'all get up there, you have Jeff call me. And uh, he goes, I would love to go painting with you guys. We're like, oh, <laughs> you know, okay, <laughs> you know. And so when we got up there, Jeff did call him and Bernie came over with all this, uh, his creep show. We had just seen creep show and he brought over some of the creep show work, but he had with him way before this was ever published. And tell us uh, what creep show, the movie creep show was the Stephen King novel and movie. And Bernie did the, the comic adaptation and the interstices for the film. You know, he also brought the stand illustrations that he was doing for Stephen King. And those didn't come out for years. And it was like the work he was doing after Frankenstein. And that was amazing. 
and uh and it was weird so he he shows up and and he was like hey you know man it's good to see you guys whatever and we're like holy shit it's burning rising you know and he goes um and we just started talking about all kinds of stuff talking about his work and this and that and we said oh we just saw creep show and whatever and we you know we got the book and he goes oh what did, what did y'all think of the book do you really want to know <laughs> he was like yeah, yeah it's we okay like, it's all right well that's what we said we said yeah i really didn't like it you know and he was like huh and he goes why i said well you know it looks like you like you just kind of did it really quickly and whatever and he goes yeah i did and he goes uh the money was too good and blah 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 and we're like well yeah okay you know and but then he pulls out the stand and we're like holy shit you know this is the stuff and we got to go to his studio and help him plant trees. And uh, I mean, it was just cool. And again, it was just this open atmosphere. And that's how we met Dan Green, uh, who's an inker, but who had really uh, sort of worked a lot of painting things out with Jeff. You know, Jeff, Dan's an, an incredible painter. And that leads into a whole other aspect of all that, too, where I would go and house sit for Dan uh, and then go painting with Jeff and whatever, you know, um, and Dan's wife. Uh, Sandy was Jeff's one of Jeff's main models and like for idol and all that stuff and a lot of the paintings so just crazy I mean it was just uh an amazing time and so yeah that's how and that's really you know that was a, a saving grace for Kent and I about how to learn how to paint you know was that and then him and Kent and I just running around doing landscapes and and going to the Brandywine to look at the the, the uh NCYF and all that stuff you know well, George, you're known for doing a lot of different media at a, an extremely high professional level, one of which is pen and ink. And of course, we've been talking about pen and ink during this whole conversation with uh, Bernie Wrightson and Jeff Jones did a lot of pen and ink early on. And yeah. you, I know that you have a technique in which you will say, OK, I'm going to do this pen and ink, maybe multimedia um mixed media, what have you, but you don't do pencils first. You just grab your pen and you start drawing. Now, does that mean you never make mistakes? <laughs> I make a ton of mistakes, but that to me is the exciting part of it is I, I found when I was doing uh, Batman, my Batman graphic novel, I was doing these drawings for the panels and in pencil. And I was really happy with these drawings. They were really I got into a lot of erasing. I just like went for it. You know what I mean? And they were like really vigorous and fun and direct. And I was like, man, you know, now I've got to transfer these things to the boards and paint them and whatever. And it just was like, you know, I just felt like the step, those steps were, were detracting from the energy of like putting it down. So when I went to Wolverine, for the four issue miniseries, I, I had that in my head where like, man, you know, one, why, why do boards, you know, full pages, um, you know, Ken had started messing around with uh, scanning uh, images and putting them together in pages. And um, so near the end of Batman, I started doing single pieces and then scanning them and making full pages out of that. And then so when I got to Wolverine, I was like, all right, screw it. I am not going to like do these drawings and then have to like, you know, ink them or go, you know, I wanted something incredibly direct. So that's, and I'd already started this process of just drawing straight with a pen. I mean, everything in my uh, No Man's Land sketchbook for Enemy Ace, which was years before all that, 
Batman and Wolverine. I did all that directly in pen. And it was like to try and one, just to get better at drawing and not constantly fixing, you know, like, let me put things down and live with it and let it be honest like that, you know, and like more direct. And so it wasn't like it was this a new thing for me, but, but really training my eye and hand to do the things I wanted, you know, the, the, them to do. And so when I got to the Wolverine, I was like, all right, so I'm just going to dip the pen and I'm going to go. And it, you know, it was on separate, these Canson drawing pads, uh, which I love the paper on those things. It's acid free and all that, but and if I messed up, it's like, well, how much how much time have I lost? I'll rip it out. And I'll I'll start another one if it really goes south, you know, really badly. And um, so you were really banking on the spontaneity, and to use your word, the energy of producing that, and not overproducing and doing a careful pencil drawing, and then losing all that energy by having to yeah. re-ink it and be be paranoid about the ink. Yeah, because um, comics was a, it was a, it was a, yeah, step by step process, and you would pencil it really tightly, and then you would ink it, and then that would you know that would either you would ink it or it would go to an inker. And it was a division of labor thing that they, which the companies did, because then they could claim you weren't a creator and they could own everything. But it would go, you know, then to a letterer and then to a colorist, and you know, and and um, every time I penciled something and would start inking it, I felt like, shit, I've already drawn this thing. You know what I mean? It's like, now I'm trapped. I, it has to be this. And I've got to follow these lines. And it's just, I just felt that it was, it was just like tying my hands, you know? And uh, so, yeah, the spontaneity is huge for me. And I love not knowing what's going to happen. To me, that's like, that's exciting. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tightrope, but I think it also imbues the work with a, with a whole different, uh thing you know a whole different uh energy um and yeah the, yeah there are mistakes you know but you know cover them up fix them in in in, in uh what's the word i'm looking for you know, incorporate it into the into the piece you know uh and so that's what i did i just would go there and then i would do watercolor on top of that and then i would do charcoal on top of that and then i would scan them and put them into pages and again all this was based on my layouts that I had done the storytelling breakdowns and then I would shoot my reference, you know, and then I would do the art, excuse me, on separate sheets and then put it together in Photoshop. Well, one thing I love about your work is it has what I would call a history or archeology span because I can look at your work and I see the different layers and I see maybe where you started and where you began to refine it and here's this little stray line over there that maybe might have been what you know we'll we'll call a mistake for lack of a better term but then you mm -hmm. incorporate it and you make it work well that was something you always talked about brent you know that and that, that influenced me is that you talked about the legacy of the of the piece you know the um the, that layering and and how that actually benefits everything you know that that's part of the the real meat of the piece too, because it's not just this facile thing. It, you could see the, the struggle or the journey or whatever in there. And that, that always fascinated me when you were talking about that stuff. It's like, cause you know, <laughs> then I can pretend like 
I meant to. It's like, oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. That's exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> well, <laughs> our our lifetime friend Mark English always said he would much rather look at an interesting drawing or an interesting painting than a perfect one. Yeah. And I think that's part of what he was talking about is, is seeing that history and seeing maybe the struggle or the different layers or the different sittings in a painting or a drawing. And I think it is yeah. more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, my feeling has always been too. It's like, why, you know, why does the viewer get to have all the fun? You know, I want to be surprised too. I want to, I would, I want to see the work in that way. Like when people see the work, they get to see, you know, freshness and whatever, you know, they get to be surprised. And I, I want that too, you know, 